This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv, and I am here today with a very special episode. I am working on wrapping up my full-time job after all this time, so time is a little bit tighter, and I'm going to kind of do maybe a couple of different sorts of episodes to help get me through to the end of the month. But this episode was actually in the planning for six months. We recorded an episode a really long time ago, which we mentioned, um, and it was not fit for human consumption. But this episode, oh, this one was very fun. I sat down with Jen and Jenny of Ancient History Fangirl, who are two of my very good friends now, and we talked about Dido and Rome and Augustan propaganda and everything in between. It was really fun and really fascinating and a good insight into the Aeneid and the kind of background that was going on there that they know a little bit more about than I do, which is very convenient for me. So sit back and enjoy our conversation about Dido, that badass queen of Carthage who Aeneas really fucked over. This is episode 92, Augustus's Rome, Carthage, and the History of Virgil's Dido. I am here today with the wonderful women of Ancient History Fangirl. Hi. Hi. So who the, who the heck are we, Jen? <laughs> so I'm Jen McMenemy, and who are you? I'm Jenny Williamson. Oh, I've heard of you guys. Yeah. Yeah, we have a little podcast called Ancient History Fangirl. That's right. 
as a bit of background for, for the listeners here, we actually tried to do this. Well, we did succeed in, in doing this recording. <laughs> what was it? Six months ago Back now? in April or something? Um, or May? Yeah. yeah, it must have been April. Yeah. It was the beginning of quarantine and we'd only spoken once before and then decided to record this episode. Um, and instead, we uh, talked and drank for five hours before starting to record the episode uh, which then went off the rails completely. And I'm sure we said some vaguely smart things. But for the most part, uh, we were five hours into drinking. Yeah. And it was yeah. like 4 a.m. for Jen, probably. Yeah, it definitely was. And if you listen to, there's there's one episode of our, of our podcast. It's our Yule episode we did last year where essentially the same thing happened. We recorded an episode over three hours. And by the end of it, we were completely incoherent. I feel like <laughs> Jen that's was where we very... got with this recording. Jen was incoherent on that one. Like, Jen. Jen was the war elephant and I was the sober-ish one. Not that sober, but like comparatively. And usually more sober. Usually it's the other way around. <laughs> and if you don't know anything about war elephants, war elephants famously went into battle drunk on human gall cocktails. Right. So, you know, I have to respect that. That is a way to go into battle. Yeah, Jen was not drinking that a human horrifying. gall cocktail that time. That's so Explain a human gall cocktail <laughs> to me I and mean, my listeners. So it's well, a lot of booze. We don't know exactly what kind of booze. Maybe some kind of green alcohol or I don't, don't know. actually know. And Let's be clear. Like we don't yeah. know what kind of alcohol it was. And that thing about the human gall was like a it was like a throwaway line. And one of the sources I was using, they just said sometimes there was human gall in the alcohol that they fed these elephants. Um Gotcha. And we just decided that these were human gall cocktails with little, you know, like little pieces of fruit and um, little mm-hmm. umbrellas in them. Pink umbrellas. <laughs> little umbrellas, yeah. Okay. So that that became a thing. So human gall cocktails. I am still working on my recipe for that. I'll let you know when I really when it really clicks. <laughs> we can put it out there for the listeners. So all of that is to say that uh, we're back to record an episode of Dido. I mean, it helped that thankfully during quarantine, I had so much trouble focusing on anything creative, let alone the Aeneid, um, <laughs> that I had to drop that story for a while. But I'm back. Yeah. And um, as the listener knows, I, I will have just released last week uh, the regular Dido episode where everyone finds out that poor, poor woman's fate. Um, but thankfully, I've got friends who know about ancient Rome. So we could talk about her in a little bit more depth. Yeah. Yeah. It's our second crack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and this time, we've only had a few sips before recording. Right. So we're off to a great start. No human galls were involved in these cocktails. Thank the good Lord. So the story of Dido's fascinating and heartbreaking and just so full of Augustan propaganda. So I think, um, I mean, I want to talk about Dido as a person because she was like a badass queen who founded Carthage. And I think that is incredible. Yeah. Um, But I think a really interesting thing about her is simply what the Romans did to her in the story of the Aeneid. Mm, Yeah. So, I mean, what we know is that, you know, Dido, the real mythological Dido, uh, she was a queen of Carthage. She traveled from Tyre, Phoenicia, uh, and founded the city of Carthage in northern Africa, in Tunisia now. She did all these things. She was a queen of of Carthage and a, a, such an important founder and everything. That is all that all exists in 
real mythology. You mean in pre-Roman like mythology that Virgil, you know, did not write. solidified with the Aeneid. Exactly. Yes. Thank you, Jen. So like mythology, not Virgil. So outside of long before Virgil's long before timeline? Virgil and Augustus <laughs> and yeah, uh, long before Rome, the the myth of Dido, as far as I know, um, existed in that way. And then, you know, we enter the Roman propaganda and uh, Augustus's desire to make Rome into the Rome that he wanted it to be. So I guess the thing to know about Augustus and this propaganda, you kind of have to know about what came just before at the end of and I'm, I'm going to I'm going to talk about my man Spartacus for a minute here. At the very, <laughs> Please. At the very end of the Republic, you have a couple of really big wars that changed the landscape of Rome. And they are the reason that Augustus was so hell bent on getting this propaganda solidified. So the first one we're going to talk about is the social wars. Now, the social wars, um, and Jenny, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. um, they happened about maybe like two generations before Spartacus revolted in, in the 70s BC. Uh, I'm not going to get all the, number, all the numbers of my dates right, so forgive me, please. It's fine. I'm not a dates podcast. No. Okay. Get your general timelines and we're good. So here's the thing about the social wars. The social wars were these wars between the different tribes on mainland Italy. And they had for a long time been the allies of Rome, but they got none of the benefits of being uh, Roman citizens. And they said, look, we're all in the same place. We should all like be one group of people and we get the same rights everyone in Rome has. And then we can be one place who stands together. And they went to war over this because essentially like, you know, they wanted rights and votes and things like that. And, and in a sense, the tribes won, but they also lost because by becoming a one sort of one Rome for all kind of thing, they had to give up some of their tribal identities and some of their tribal beliefs um, in order to get this sort of representation and things that they wanted from Rome. And as a result, you're seeing the depreciation of sort of their cultures. Because remember, like Italy, like everywhere, like Gaul and everywhere else, they had different tribes and different cultures and different, you know, dialects and stuff like that. So this is a huge thing that happened just before um, Virgil was essentially born. After that, you've got the, um, the, the Civil War. Do you want to jump on that one, Jenny? Right. So the civil wars were, were these wars that happened between these two um, prominent Roman generals, Marius and Sulla. Um, Marius was a populist. Sulla was a conservative. They had a lot of personal beef. Um, at the time, Rome had been a republic for a while. It had been like, you know, ostensibly like a, a democracy, although it was like a wildly unfair democracy, but still a democracy. They were really, um, really adamant about not having one person have too much power. But the Sulla and Marius wars, like in those wars, um, and prior to them, this General Marius, who had power first, um, really did a lot of things to consolidate power under himself. And then um, these wars between him and this other General Sulla happened. Um, and then Sulla became kind of, a, he defeated Mar- Marius and became a dictator, basically. And there were all these really bloody prescriptions where anyone who had sided with Marius in these wars were, was, um, you know, there, a lot of these people were murdered. Sulla hung up a list of his enemies and people could go out and just kill someone on Sulla's list, bring back the head and get to keep their, um, their land and their, you know, villas and everything like that. So all this land had been redistributed. Um, a lot of people had were, you know, murdered. Um, a lot of people were in poverty who had not been. The countryside had been, you know, kind of racked with violence for a really long time. And there was so much instability by the end of this. And um, 
Of course, Sulla had completely, Sulla had basically wiped out the democratic system and made himself a dictator, which I believe lasted until his death in, mm-hmm. I think, where are we at at that point? I forget, like the 80s. BC. Yeah. So after that period of instability, you had all of you had people who were in different tribal areas. Um, Their land was now redistributed. And they and a lot of times that land had been given to wealthy Roman, um, wealthy Roman citizens who may or may not have been affiliated with that sort of tribal area. Probably allies of Sulla, though, right? Definitely allies of Sella. And what they did was they started large-scale agricultural farming or plantations on mainland Italy. And this is super important because what happens next is you have the epic slave revolt of Spartacus. And we don't need to go into that, but that happened because all of Italy radically shifted. And just as Spartacus was rebelling, Virgil was born. Virgil was born at the twilight of the Roman Republic, and he came from really kind of humble means. He uh, was a working artist, and he would have most of his time, he would be looking for a patron to support him. And this is different from other artists of the time, who we we can talk about in a little bit, like Ovid, who um, had more means and more money. By the time Spartacus's war is finished, of course, Virgil's like a baby, so he doesn't really know any of that. But by the time all of that's finished, you have another dude who comes along who's like, I'm going to be a king. I'm going to be a king. And his name is Julius Caesar. Oh, yeah. That guy. (laughs) And we're not going to go into everything Julius Caesar did because we have a podcast about that. (laughs) So Julius Caesar was Augustus's uncle. A great uncle, actually. Kind of his uncle dad. It's very complicated. Oh, boy, those Romans. So after Julius Caesar is assassinated, you have another power struggle between Augustus his brother-in-law slash Caesar's ex-right-hand man, Mark Antony, uh, and they fight and they fight a civil war for quite a, a while. And by the time the civil war is done, Augustus is like, I am the man who will rule these ruins. Um, although they weren't ruins, but he left, you know, that that's effectively the where we transition from having a republic into an empire. And over the course of probably less than a hundred years, the landscape of Italy and the culture of the Italian people had changed so dramatically. So what Augustus needed, what he really, really needed, was to give the Roman people one unified identity. No more tribal identities. No more, you know, once you became part of Rome, once you were a Roman, this was your rich history. And they didn't have, you know, a big thing about being Roman was that no kings, you know, and they didn't have that anymore. They didn't have that one unifying factor of we're a democracy. We don't have, you know, one ruling king. We have, you know, rule by the people, although... You know, obviously that left a lot of people out, but um, but they had lost that part of their identity, which had been really big. And Augustus had seen what happens when a man uh, sets himself up as dictator for life and seems to have too much power. I mean, Julius Caesar's assassination still rung in his ears. Oh, yeah. So what he what he wanted to do with this propaganda and it's all propaganda, all of the Aeneid is propaganda. What he wanted to do with this propaganda was create this epic story so that Roman people could feel like their heritage didn't just stretch back through a tribal heritage or a regional heritage. It stretched back through the ages. It stretched back to the fall of Troy. Their people were long and storied and ancient because I I suspect, and I, I can't be proven right or wrong on this, I'm sure, but a lot of the original stuff past the kings and the founding of Rome, we don't know about. Mm-hmm. So 
it, they may have had very disparate beliefs. Um, and we know that a lot of Rome or a lot of Italy in different places was settled by people from different areas like Greece and everything else. So they really didn't have one unifying story of them. And so the Aeneid was literally Augustus saying, I will give you that story and it will be epic. I mean, they definitely did have Romulus and Remus and they had like the Alba Longa I was just going to ask that, And they yeah. had, you know, the kingship, yeah. the king period before the Republic, which I think is mostly mythical as well. But I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not sure if all people who were now Roman citizens shared that common mythology. I mean, that would have been really specific to um, Roman citizens who I guess had been Roman before the social wars, right? Maybe? I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm guessing. But I think the point of Aeneas being who he was, being a refugee, where he settled, where his sons eventually went off and settled, and all the people he eventually meets on his journeys, was to say that all of Italy is Rome. And all of it is one culture, and it's not just the kings from this area or whatever else. There's also the factor of it it builds Augustus himself and Augustus's um, family into that mythology, so justifying his right to rule. Absolutely. So, you know, the reason Virgil takes this job is he's a working he's a working writer mm-hmm. and Augustus, you know, sort of is like, hey, you need a patron. I need a story. He's got a Patreon set up. He just needs he needs to pay the bills. God, he does. <laughs> and this is the story that Augustus wanted him to tell. And within it, there are so many allusions to Roman history. Like, there's so much that he's built in there. And as Jenny said, you can see that he's literally laying the groundwork for essentially saying that I am Augustus, I am the first citizen, I am also descendant of God, Mm -hmm. you know, because he's Augustus. And also all of these other storied people in our common mythology. And also, I go back to Troy, so look at me. Yeah. Um, There's there's this whole section. um, It's before Dido Live. I'm sure you covered this part, um, where... It's Venus talking to Zeus about how she wants to protect her her Trojans. And Zeus has just allowed Juno to screw with them. And he's he's calming Venus down and saying, look, calm down, calm down, Venus. It's okay. What's really going to happen is these guys are going to settle Italy. And they're going to, you know, give rise to these Alba Longa kings. And then eventually Romulus and Remus are going to come along. And then Julius Caesar... Because that's how that line worked. And there was nothing happened in all of Italy <laughs> until Julius Caesar popped up. <laughs> Julius Caesar pops into this story and I'm just like, there it is. There it is. Like, there's the Augustan propaganda rearing its head. <laughs> we specifically remember that part where suddenly it's like Venus just Venus and Zeus together just basically lay out every wonderful thing about Rome. And they just <laughs> essentially it's like. It's like the propaganda goes from subtle to obvious in that section. It's kind of delightful. Exactly. It's so much. So when I covered it, I absolutely laid all that out. It was yeah. like just so over the top and quite entertaining in the way that it was just like suddenly it's like, oh, let me just explain to you exactly how important uh, Aeneas is and how eventually he'll lead to everyone else you know who's important, including, oh, look at that. How lucky. Augustus himself. And the deified Julius yeah. Caesar. <laughs> and the deified Julius Caesar. Absolutely. Do you know, there's a scene that Liv hasn't covered yet where Aeneas goes into the underworld to see his father and his father parades before him, his father is Anchises, parades before him a litany of people who are going to be famous Romans, including Augustus's beloved 
um, grandson, Marcellus, mm. who died very young. He was supposed to be the next, essentially, you know, emperor of Rome. Right. But he never got there. So, like, he's presented as this tragic, woeful, I think he died at, like, 24 or 25 years young, uh, figure of what could have been, you know? Yeah. And you know Virgil has put that in there to just, like, stroke Augustus's ego. Or to just, you know, stroke well, him, get him in the feels. Maybe. And also, I mean, I guess it is one of those things where, like, Marcellus probably was a really, you know, he was a celebrity. He was a, a guy who died too young, who was, I think he was very competent in battle, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm -hmm. And he probably had lots of soldiers who were loyal to him and people who really mourned his passing, just like we would mourn the passing of any other sort of hero, war hero, or sports hero, or celebrity. Yeah. And I think the really important thing to remember, and somebody brought this up to us in our podcast, in our comments, and when we were talking about Julius Caesar's commentaries, oh, we're still talking about him. But the way Virgil and Homer were writing was they were writing for these to be told aloud as stories. And a lot of the repetition of certain things that you hear in Homer, like the ship names and stuff like that, is because in the original language, it would have been easy to rhyme and get into the, the, the feel of telling the story. And I think in the Aeneid, what's different is the reason that all of these things are being repeated, all of these great people, is because in different areas of both mainland Italy and also the Republic, that this was supposed to just bring this huge, like, glorious scale and scope as you were listening. Because mm -hmm. at this point in time, Rome was definitely, you know, beginning its real, the height of its expansionism powers. Yeah. Well, and I what I think is always interesting reading Virgil as well is as much as they do some repetition, it really feels nothing like Homer when you're reading them kind of mm -hmm. back to back, which I have been just in the way that I'm reading the Iliad aloud on the podcast and then covering the Aeneid because it, the Iliad is so repet It just has so much repetition. Like even in the way that if, if somebody's like, okay, um, go tell this person this, 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 and this, and this, then it'll be like, and then this person went and told them this, 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 and this. Like, it's not like in the way that we would write today mm -mm. where it's like, oh, and they told them all yeah. of that, you know, where you, you summarize in that way. Um, and Virgil, definitely, he is a much more modern. He writes a lot more like what we have now um, versus Homer. But I also do think as we're talking about all of this, it's important to note that like, it, it is all propaganda, absolutely. It's all because Augustus wanted to stroke his ego and, and get this united Rome and have everyone just obsessed with Rome and with him. But also it's very purposeful that not only they took the story from Troy, but also that Virgil is emulating mm -hmm. Homer. Because he's not just mm -hmm. emulating Homer in the way that he's like writing an epic poem. He's emulating Homer in the way that Aeneas goes to the underworld and has all these people paraded before him, right? It's like, well, that happens to Odysseus. Like the the things that happen to Aeneas are so connected to the Odyssey, like all oh, so very similar in terms of what happens to Odysseus and and the greatness that came with that in Homer. That it's so clear that they were essentially trying to write a combination of the Iliad and the Odyssey, but to make it Roman, but to make it as impressive as Homer, as memorable as Homer. Because of course the Romans would have read Homer. Yeah. Like it's it's not like these were you know each written in a vacuum like the Romans would have read Homer they would have recognized the greatness in Homer and it's important to the importance to the Greeks and they were obviously influenced by the Greeks as we know from their whole mythology and then of course the Greeks lived in Sicily for a really long time I don't know the the history of connecting that to Rome but um Sicily was Greek well before it was Rome 
Well, sure. Sicily was Greek before it was Rome, and it was also sort of settled too. by the Carthaginians. Mm-hmm. So right. Sicily was a hotbed of who owned it at which time. Right. There were wars and fought on Sicily. Find... Like, there was a Greek and wa- Roman war, I believe, and I think it was part of the Punic mm-hmm. Wars, too. Like, it was a hotly contested area. Mm-hmm. It was also the site of oh, the first so two servile wars. Yeah, it was, mm-hmm. it was a hotbed. And I think the inclusion of, of talking about Sicily is important because there is a lot that they that the Aeneid is trying to do to sort of effectively say that Aeneid, that everything Augustus has been doing, this propaganda, is kind of a bit of a manifest destiny mm-hmm. to get Rome to be the empire that it is. And that's that's one of the reasons why I find it really fascinating to dig into the Aeneid and also terrifying. And it's so valuable um, in our modern day to look at the way the story was told and how the history was spun from a different lens than looking at Homer. Homer is, is to me, more about poetry. It's more about watching in the Iliad. You have this epic story of, like, essentially, you know, um, essentially what it means to be a great fighter, what it means to be at war, what it means to to be honored for your bravery. What You know, it's looking at a culture that's on the verge of changing. And then you get to the Odyssey, which is actually all about a guy who, he's a decent soldier, but he's no Achilles. You know, what, what it is about him is he's clever. And we're looking at the the way in which we change from honoring the best of the best of the soldiers to the cleverest and the smartest and the thinking person. And I love that contrast. But what you see in the Aeneid is like Aeneas is actually none of those yeah, things. Yeah, he's neither one of them, is he? And you know what's you know what's also interesting about what you just said is that um the story of Dido in particular, I was just reading it over um before we did this before we did this episode and um thinking about how Dido's uh, relationship with Aeneas and then um, and then their breakup was kind of it was kind of like a setup for explaining the Punic Wars and like all this conflict mm-hmm. between Carthage and Rome that had already happened because she really curses him a lot. <laughs> yeah, she absolutely does. Oh, I think what I, what I was trying to say too with the Homer mm-hmm. stuff is you're absolutely right, both of you, and I think that is what makes it so interesting, that Virgil is trying to emulate Homer, yes, but the very big difference and the thing that's most obvious between them is that Homer isn't making a point about Greek importance. Mm -hmm. Homer is writing stories of people, people that were beloved and important, yes, but also that were flawed, and like there isn't really anyone in the Iliad that comes out as perfect, Everyone has their shit and that's the whole point. And same with the Odyssey. Like they aren't about deifying one person. They aren't about like Homer wasn't trying to make the Greeks seem um, holier than thou. Whereas the Aeneid is exactly that. Mm -hmm. He tried to emulate Homer in that exact way. But at the same time, the entire purpose is to say, but look how great Aeneas is. Hey, isn't Aeneas perfect? Ooh, look at what Aeneas is going to go on to do. It's going to be the greatest empire in the whole world. Oh my gosh, we better help him because he's He's just so perfect. perfect. He's such a Mary Sue, you know? (laughs) And the thing that I find fascinating about Aeneas is Aeneas doesn't have like a ridiculous amount of hubris like we see in a lot of other Greek mythology and Greek stories. He is... This guy who honors the gods. Like when he's running out of Troy, he has his father on one shoulder, his son by the arm, and his household shrines to the gods in his backpack. And somehow he has no room to grab his wife. But, you know, whatever. He's got those household gods, okay? (laughs) That's the important thing. Yeah, he's got the household gods. What's super important about the household gods to me and about what Augustus is trying to 
have here is there were specific gods that the Romans worshipped in their household that were super important. They were like a massive part of their day-to-day life and culture. And this is really solidifying that the reason that they're still important and that we still worship them now and that we have all of this is because of Aeneas. And because Aeneas worshipped the gods, wasn't subject to lots of hubris, um, you know, because he stayed on the path and did what the gods wanted him to do, we now have this great nation. And when you drill a little deeper into it, it's kind of Augustus saying honor your gods women are disposable gods honor the gods women are absolutely disposable Mm -hmm. and do what is set up before you in the path yeah this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Uh, this is the path you walk in order to achieve greatness, whether that's as a soldier, or as a baker or whatever. You go stay on that path. You do not stray from that path. And, and the Odyssey is all about going off that path because you've obviously angered some gods. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, I think that's really uh, important, too, um, in the story of Dido is the message that I was getting is that when you as as the man and obviously the star of the show and the protagonist of the story here, when you are presented um, with a sort of fork in your road between a woman and, you know, having this relationship or whatever, or even, you know, honoring a commitment to a woman and something the gods want you to do, you obviously have to follow what the gods want you to do. Like, the women are disposable here in this story and in this world. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And I love that, uh, like, this is a part I definitely harped on in the episode. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But as much as like it, it is, I mean, he absolutely is just about like, yeah, see you later. It doesn't really matter. The gods told me to do yeah. this. But he also makes such a point to Dido when Dido's like, hey, but we're married. And he's like, no, no, that was not a marriage. I, we did not I get never married. married. Well, I, don't know you. What I don't know what you saw. Yeah, we are not married. We've been together for a year and somehow you were under the impression we were married, but we were not married. It's like, okay, Aeneas. Just because Juno blessed our marriage, I mean, just because, like, Venus was, like, putting you, like, all the love spells on you so that you would just be like, oh, my tongue is falling out. Hello, Aeneas. I know. As opposed to, hello, some other really handsome Carthaginian guy who I could definitely get with. But I decided not to get with anyone because I've already had a husband that I loved and lost. And the reality is I could just rule as a badass queen on my own. I don't need anyone. I could just have a consort. Damn fucking right. The Aeneas just bullshit. (laughs) So, Jenny, here's the thing about Dido. When we launched our podcast, um, Ancient History Fangirl, one of our first episodes was about, I think it was about the Punic War. It was about the Third Punic War, yeah. The Third Punic War. And there is a scene in the Third Punic War that completely reminds me of Dido's death. And I went off for ages on this. And Jenny's like, please stop talking about the Aeneas. She did. I was like, why Um, are we still spreading Augustus's propaganda? You need to stop. (laughs) I was like, I have to call it out. People need to know. So I, I, I feel like, Jenny, you should give us that story. So basically what Jen was talking about was um, the story of Hasdrubal's wife during the Third Punic War. And I kind of fell down this rabbit hole of like, OK, which story came first, the story of Dido or the story of Hasdrubal's wife? And Liv, when you said that um, there was ex- pre-existing mythology um, prior to Virgil, that talked about Dido, I really wanted to know where you were getting that from because I did some research into this and the earliest thing I could find about specifically Dido was Virgil, except for Trogus. So the Aeneid, I'm just going to give you all this background on the Third Punic War. Um, The Aeneid was written between, I don't know exactly what the date was, 29 and 19 BC, somewhere around then. Um, And the story, I think it took about 10 years. And the story of Dido, who was the Carthaginian queen who commits suicide on a funeral pyre, this specific part of her story, is echoed elsewhere in the ancient record. And it's something that I really found fascinating and Jen really latched onto in our very first episode. So we saw another, you know, prominent Carthaginian woman dying by funeral pyre in the Third Punic War, which was the great siege of Carthage by the Romans from 149 to 146 BC. And At the end of that siege, that was when the wife of Hasdrubal, the Carthaginian general who um, had just lost, committed suicide on a funeral pyre. Um, And just to give you the background, after the Second Punic War, the Carthaginians had to agree to this onerous peace treaty that required them to pay a lot of money to the Romans every year for 50 years. It was like 200 talents of silver a year, which is an insane amount of money. And the Carthaginians abided by the treaty. Um, This is at the end of the Second Punic War. There were three Punic Wars, and the Romans won them all. Um, But still, in the years after the Second Punic War, the Romans were, they were kind of like leery of the Carthaginians because they looked like they were still living too good of a life, you know? Like, they were still too rich. And one prominent senator, Cato Cato the Elder, who was the great grandfather of Cato the Younger, would end every single speech, even the ones that had absolutely nothing to do with Carthage, with the phrase, um, I think it was Cartago Delenda Est, which is, and furthermore, Carthage must be destroyed. He said this all the time, even when he was ordering coffee at the bodega. He had to say that at the end of every sentence. So, <laughs> yeah, it was like, it was his like, he just could not shut he up about it. He could not shut up about it. He was like, listen, I don't understand why we're having a conversation when Carthage is still standing there. It is our only real enemy. It is actually getting lots and lots of power. I'm sure they have weapons of mass destruction. It must be destroyed. Carthage must be destroyed. 
So in 149 BC, the Romans found some stupid flimsy pretext to declare a third war against the Carthaginians. And they basically, this was a three-year siege. It was long, it was brutal, it was bloody. The um, general that was leading the resistance against Rome was a guy named Hasdrubal. He has a whole backstory. I'm not going to go into it. The Carthaginians lost. And Hasdrubal, he, the losing general, he had a wife and two sons. And when Hasdrubal lost, his wife was so incensed that, as Appian of Alexandria describes it, I'm going to give you the quote from Appian, quote, it is said that as the fire was lighted, the wife of Hasdrubal, in full view of Scipio, the victorious Roman general, arrayed in the best attire possible under such circumstances, and with her children by her side, said in Scipio's hearing, For you, Roman, the gods have no cause of indignation, since you exercise the rights of war. Upon this Hasdrubal, her husband, betrayer of his country and her temples, of me and his children, because he lost, may the gods of Carthage take vengeance and you be their instrument." So this only makes sense if you know that Hasdrubal lost and also, like, sued for peace mm -hmm. and didn't, like, fight to the bitter end. He didn't just lose. He walked away from the battle. And that's why Hasdrubal's wife is She's so She's so furious. mad. So she turns to Hasdrubal, and there's a little bit of, um, you know, ridiculousness here. Wretch, she exclaimed, traitor, most effeminate of men, because that was, like, the worst thing that they could think of to call men at this time. <laughs> because uh, everyone is awful in the ancient world. This fire will entomb me and my children. Will you, the leader of great Carthage, decorate a Roman triumph? Ah, what punishment will you not receive from him at whose feet you are now sitting? And having reproached him thus, she slew her children, flung them into the funeral pyre, and plunged in after them. Such, they say, was the death of the wife of Hasdrubal, which would have been more becoming to himself. So that is the death of the wife of Hasdrubal, and it sounds pretty familiar to me. Yeah, the husband gets to walk away. Yep. He would probably then get to go live his life out somewhere else as long as he didn't take up arms against Rome. He got to settle in Italy and just live a life as a private, a private person. Yeah. He did not die after this war. He got to walk away just like Aeneas. <laughs> Just like Aeneas did. Yeah. And what happens? The woman who's saying, by, by taking this peace with Rome, by ending this war, you are literally, you are condemning everyone in Carthage to enslavement. Mm -hmm. you're, you're taking away our culture, our people. You're letting us be annexed. It is better that you fucking throw yourself on that fire than you take this treaty and you become a private citizen. But Hasdrubal does. The price would have been high for a woman in this time as, a, you know, a high-ranking woman as a member of a conquered community, you know, because she would face enslavement and that would be horrible, especially horrible, you know, because there's a lot of rape involved in that. And like if she didn't die, you know, so I feel yeah. like she would have feared slavery a lot. Obviously, everybody would. But she had like these fears. I think Hasdrubal probably thought he could he could walk away from this and probably his wife didn't you know because the price would have been higher for her we we don't know exactly what happened but mm -hmm. there might have been like Hasdrubal has to settle in Rome and take a Roman wife and be a proper Roman private citizen to show that we are able to you know annex these countries and integrate the people of the countries into our world now where that would leave his wife in this situation we don't know we don't know yeah so anyway the wife, of the, the wife of the Carthaginian general Hasdrubal also committed suicide by funeral pyre. And there seems to be this association between strong Carthaginian women and deaths by funeral pyre that I wanted to talk about. And um, way back when I first read this, I kind of assumed that Virgil had lifted this story from Appian. 
when he wrote the Aeneid, or he lifted the story of Dido from the story of Hasdrubal's wife. That's what I assumed, um, but I don't think that's true, and I kind of traced out a chronology of where I found Dido's story from, and I wanted to see if Liv could add to this. Um, so the actual Third Punic War happened um, from 149 to 146 BC, and Virgil's Aeneid was published in 19 BC, which was about 130 years or so later, something like that. So that's where we get the first story of Dido committing suicide by funeral pyre that I found. No, that's um, where we get the first published story that exists into the present day. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like the first published okay. one that we know of. That we have, now. yeah. Everything in um, all yeah. mythology is, this is what we have, let not necessarily what was written. Yeah, or what was, existed as an oral tradition or legend. Yeah. Right, so then so then you have Appian, who published his account of the Third Punic War with Hasdrubal's wife committing su- suicide by funeral pyre, which was in the hundreds AD, about a century or so after Virgil. So his account that I just read you is actually younger than Virgil's account by about 100 years. Mm. He could have been getting it from Virgil. Mm. There's one other mention of Carthaginian queens and funeral pyres that I know about, which is Justin's Forum Romanum, where he describes Dido, who he, um, her name in that account is Alyssa, committing suicide by funeral pyre to avoid marrying a king that she doesn't want to marry. And Justin's story, we're not really sure when that happened because we're not sure when he lived. And I've seen historians say maybe he lived as late as 300s AD, around then, or he could have lived around the same time as Virgil. But he's believed to have been summarizing a different writer, Trogus, who probably did live around the same time as Virgil. So, and Trogus's work is lost. So we don't know, we don't have his stuff except for when it's summarized by other writers. So the dates are fuzzy here. And it seems like there's a common story or there must be some kind of common original thread that everyone's drawing from that we don't have. And I just found that to be really interesting. And Liv, do you know of any other sources? I know... I know that essentially we do understand that Dido existed mythologically because as mm-hmm. far as I know, the, the she's accepted in Greek mythology as having been a mythological queen of Phoenicia and Carthage um, because the Greeks right. felt like they thought very highly of the Phoenicians and had a lot of dealings with them. Um, Mm -hmm. they credited the Phoenicians with giving them their alphabet through the hero Cadmus whom I love. Um, But yeah, so as far as I know, they did believe Dido to be this mythological, if not real, founding um, queen of Carthage. Apparently there's also some record of, and I should say Alyssa, not necessarily Dido. Um, Alyssa Mm -hmm. seems to be her original Carthaginian name, um, which does make sense in terms of of the the languages because obviously Phoenicia is going to be in the Middle East. It's sort of generally modern Lebanon. And so a name like Alyssa is much more accurate to that, uh, like civilization, um, than Dido. Um, but anyway, Mm -hmm. so they, they know that Alyssa, what I think was pretty mythologically accurate. Like you were saying, there is that, uh, lost writer, um, Timaeus, who is then, I, believe uh referenced elsewhere so they they believe that he did talk about this founding uh queen Alyssa. and then there seems to also have been some record of her on something found at ephesus um which suggested Mm -hmm. that she did exist as well so as far as i understand dido 
I understand her and like or Alyssa to be a mythological founding queen of Carthage. Whether or not she was real or not, I don't know. But um, mythological right. founding queen. As far as I know, the funeral pyre, the the killing herself because of Aeneas, is straight out of Virgil. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. I, I don't know that for certain i've asked in last week's episode actually if anyone has any information about dido outside of the (laughs) iliad or outside of the aeneid rather please let me know because i desperately want to know about her outside of virgil because to me everything about her in that moment is based in what the romans or rather augustus wanted people to believe they wanted to demonize the carthaginians they wanted to make them the villains they wanted to excuse the fact that however many years before rome had completely 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 decimated Carthage had just burned it to the ground and and I it seems to me that they just wanted to explain that explain why Rome was justified in that because Dido curses Rome and oh Carthage fought Rome for so long that Rome finally had to just do away with them and burn the whole place down and so to me Dido's fate is 100% Roman propaganda and again I don't know that to be certain but based on the reading of it based on yeah the way it's told and the way she is it seems to me that that is is the only you know, way to take it. Yeah, that was my kind of one of the questions I had. And I do like she is I believe she commits suicide by funeral pyre. Aeneas is not involved in the Justin's Forum Romanum story, which is also a Roman source. Yeah, that's the only one I know about outside of Justin. And then of course, you have Appian, which is which is sort of tangential to it, but similar. So I have some thoughts on that. Yeah. So we're going back to Augustus. Augustus famously had zero sense of humor and if Augustus <laughs> didn't like something Augustus squashed that something so I don't know anything about these ancient sources or anyone who might have had this incredible story about Hasdrubal's wife being so noble and brave about her people but if that source did exist I suspect our man Augustus might have squashed it interesting possibly possibly because I'm going to tell you another story about Augustus who Literally, as we've said on the podcast many times, has a face you just want to smack. <laughs> yeah, you just like see his bust somewhere and you're just like, smack it. So there's another poet who paralleled in some ways um, Virgil, and that poet is Liv's beloved. Uh, I, have, I haven't mm-hmm. read his section yeah. on the Aeneid yet. And I just the minute you said that there's another poet, I was like, oh, my God, why haven't I read Ovid's take on Aeneas yet? Anyway. I'm feeling uh, betrayed by myself. So the thing about Ovid was he had more money than Virgil did. He um, didn't necessarily need the patronage. You know, he didn't need that day job of working for Augustus the way that uh, Virgil did. So the thing about Ovid was he just could not... So he could not help himself. He just could not he's help himself. He's the best. He's a crazy person. He's the best. He's crazy. He, I mean, if you haven't read the Heroides, like, just go treat yourself. Mm. Give yourself a couple hours and just delve in. But here's where I was going. Ovid was one of the most famous poets of his time. And he was exiled by Augustus because he wrote a poem about an indiscretion. Now, Augustus is a, is good at his job. We don't know what that indiscretion is. It has not come down through history, except in rumors. And the rumors were that Ovid was having an affair with Augustus's granddaughter, Julia. Ooh. Oh, I knew it was Julia. She's my favorite. Julia got banished. So both Ovid and Julia 
were banished to different places at about the same time. Um, and this was when Augustus was getting all high and moral because he was rewriting the code of contact for the code of conduct for Roman citizens. And that's why he employed Virgil to give us this Mary Sue of a hero, Aeneas. And I think it is totally worth just taking like a two-second detour to tell you just a little bit about Augustus's granddaughter, Julia, because she was so incredible. I mean, I I don't know exactly because I have not done a deep dive into Julia. Are you surprised that she might have been having an affair with her? No, she had a lot of affairs. I mean, the thing (laughs) (laughs) one thing about Augustus's code of conduct for uh, Roman citizens was that it was real heavy on specifically what women should do. Oh, weird. And one thing women should do was definitely not have a lot of affairs. Um, and his daughter, his granddaughter, Julia, just insisted on flouting these rules that, that Augustus was extremely hardcore about at every opportunity. She would not. She would not follow these rules that her grandfather was lying, laying down. She was going to sleep with who she wanted. She was going to do what she wanted. So eventually she got exiled and it was a giant bummer. But she was really badass, and I just love her. <laughs> the other thing, the other thing to remember about this is Augustus was like he was utterly humorless about any jokes about him, his family, anything going around. Where you know Julius Caesar let people write and make up body songs about how he was a bald adulterer who would just sleep with all your wives, lock them up because <laughs> he's in town. Oh yeah, you could you could joke around about Julius Caesar. You could make fun of him either to his face or behind his back, and it was fun. Yeah. Even when he was a dictator, you could do that. And he would not have you killed like he was yeah. he was he was kind of a good sport about it all yeah whereas with augustus the guy who created who essentially solidified the empire you could not have a have a body you know poem and about an indiscretion if you did you and the woman it might have been about will be exiled yeah augustus was not a good time yeah. but that not a good time shows you how virgil crafted aeneas Aeneas could not be a guy who had fun. Aeneas could not be a guy who was a guy's guy. Aeneas had to have a moral code. He had to follow what the gods wanted him to do. He had to walk away from maybe the second love of his life because, I mean, he definitely walked away from his first wife. Yeah, he definitely, he had practice at walking away from his wives. What Augustus wanted from Virgil was this hero who essentially was, you know, so good and so pure and so dignified in their quest for, you know, creating this country or or finding their new homeland, you know, and then eventually founding this great republic and empire. You know, what he wanted was to create this myth, kind of a lot like the myth of the American founding fathers. No. Interesting. Uh, Yeah, America has a lot of resemblance to Augustus and the Aeneid, like so much. The founding fathers, the Constitution, devoted to it beyond all belief. And the Mm -hmm. myth making. Yeah. Well, and a lot of a lot of that, as I said, a lot of that manifest destiny, destiny that you see in the Aeneid and in in Aeneas needing to get to his homeland then sort of explains why the Roman Empire took so many people into slavery from the different areas that they conquered. And, and conquered all these places and spread. And they didn't just conquer different places, but they really worked hard to spread their culture around and get the buy-in, you know, from mm-hmm. different communities. Like one, you could, um, I mean, depending on the time period, you know, they were really, they weren't just going to conquer your community. They were going to come in and they were going to put the baths in and the roads in and everyone's going to wear togas now. Everyone's going to speak the language now. Like they were really all about bringing, like pushing out their culture mm-hmm. as well. So they d- definitely had that sort of, 
we're we're the civilizing factor and we're and we're doing this for your own good you know and that doesn't sound familiar either yeah absolutely this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with purdue global when you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. think about Dido's character and personality and what happens to her in this story. I think it's just really interesting to watch what changes when Venus puts that spell on her. Like I really emphasize mm-hmm. the spell in my telling because I think it's just the only way to understand her because yeah. She really is like a very different person. I mean, I guess we don't have that much of her beforehand. That's also really interesting in Roman history because Roman people, and Jenny, you know more about this than I do, Roman people didn't really value love. Like you were supposed to have, you know, an affection for your spouse and feel a filial duty towards your spouse. But romantic love was considered something like a madness. And you definitely see it shown that way in Dido's story. Like it's something that is, um, you know, put on her from an outside force, Cupid. And kind of takes her over and all of a sudden, like what Liv said, it's really true. You know, before she was independent, she didn't want to be married. She had this husband who had died. She was good by herself. She had turned down several marriage proposals by different people. She wanted to be independent and rule her city. And she had all these goals and projects that she was busy with and working on. And then Aeneas comes in and this love spell is kind of cast on her by Cupid And suddenly all she cares about is Aeneas. She can't stop thinking about Aeneas. She's like sick with longing for Aeneas. She's just utterly single-minded in her desire to be with Aeneas. 
And then when he leaves, there's she she doesn't have him anymore, so she can't find her way back to that person that she used to be. You know, the way that it was told really does um, tell me something about how the ancient Romans saw love as as the sort of madness that comes over you and that kind of derails your life. Absolutely, and why it was very important that if you wanted to succeed in your life, you didn't marry necessarily someone you loved. You married someone who you were you cared about and you could you could see being a partner in what you needed to do. Mm-hmm. It's all about duty, duty to the gods, duty to the country. And you see in that absolutely in Aeneas's decision making here, like he's not mm-hmm. you don't marry someone you're super passionate about because that draws you away from what the gods want from you, what your country yeah. wants from you. And you see Aeneas making what looks like a very cold and callous choice to the modern reader, but that a Roman, ancient Roman reader might have interpreted very differently. But think about what you're trying to Im- impress upon women as well. Like, oh, you don't want to be with the guy who you're absolutely wildly passionate about because then he'll ruin your life. He'll, he'll ruin your life. You'll have this kind of crazy madness. Yeah, don't, it's all going to end on a funeral pyre and a blaze of fire. It's not going to end well, you know. <laughs> so we were asking you, um, you know, what do you see in this in this story arc of Dido's and why... Um, and, and just the fact that she changes so much between when she meets Aeneas and before Aeneas. Right. Well, and then, so I also looked up the source I had, because I did a whole episode on Dido, but it was pre-quarantine. And now I'm like, what did I say? What did I read? Where is time? Where did it go? Um, <laughs> and so anyway, but it looks like I did find a source. And uh, this was a, this is a secondary source. So where what primary sources he's drawing from, I'm not sure. Um but I had read this book um, called Roman Mythology, A Traveler's Guide, uh, which is was really interesting and then had the story of Dido beyond the Aeneid and, and her story of her time in Phoenicia and then traveling to Carthage. There wasn't too much, don't get me wrong. It's not like a ton more information, um, but just kind of exemplified her from before that. And I think it's if you go beyond the Aeneid then you do get this sort of whole look at Dido because you know she was this princess of Carthage and her brother was a real asshole and killed her husband and she was just basically like absolutely fuck you I'm gonna go found a city um and then you know we do have historically the Phoenicians did found uh little colonies like all around that region they were really prolific in the whole area um and so you know the idea that that she would have founded one of those isn't unheard of um and then yeah she she built the whole city from scratch and jenny used language earlier that i think was really telling is the building of the towers and things that she sort of oversaw as the queen and there is a line in Mm -hmm. the aeneid right at the beginning when the love spell is taking over her that specifically says that the builders didn't know what to do essentially it was like these people were still there trying to build and expand carthage and make it this great and gleaming city that she had founded but without her guidance when she was overtaken by this love spell that all fell by the wayside and i think that that's just exemplary of what what the spell did regardless of what how much of dido is told in the aeneid before the spell hits because i realized too it's like almost nothing it's you know she's in her throne room and she meets the trojans and then aeneas is watching like a creeper hidden in invisibility and then Mm -hmm. reveals himself and you know his very aeneas i'm so beautiful look at me kind of way and then very quickly from there they send in Cupid as Ascanius to put the spell on 
onto Dido. And so I think, you know, it, you don't have that much of her beforehand, but if you kind of look into her a little bit more or just think rationally, like this woman traveled from Phoenicia to found a city, like she was powerful. She was strong and independent. She didn't need men. That is obvious from what she did, regardless of what we have in the story itself. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah, I mean, essentially like what Venus and Cupid do is just absolutely ruin her just for the sake of Aeneas. I mean, I, I guess there's also, you can sort of see, like, Augustus is the one who finally um, effectively colonized Egypt. And he was the last queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. And what was Cleopatra driven mad by? Her love for Mark Antony. She wasn't. That's not the case. But you can see a parallel there in the history and what Augustus is trying to show. In that anytime a woman, you know, allows herself to fall in love with a man, everything will be ruined, including her country. I mean, now that I think about it, that really is a dig also to Cleopatra in Egypt, which, damn it, Augustus, why? You know, there's definitely a through line here, um, not just in the Aeneid, but throughout so many, um, you know, ancient stories and myths and things from all kinds of cultures that I've read, where it's like women choosing who they want to have sex with is a real destabilizing force. Mm. Like you don't want to let the woman choose. Destabilizing is such a good word for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like it's just there's all these cautionary tales about women choosing to marry someone that they shouldn't marry or choosing to sleep with someone other than their husband and that just causing the entire society to collapse around everyone's ears, you know? Yeah. Well, look at it. Like, when when Aeneas is with Dido, much like when Mark Antony was with Cleopatra, he completely forgets his duty to his people. He yeah. forgets that he's supposed to found a country and do all these great things because he's so enamored and in love and enjoying the company of this beautiful queen. I mean, I don't know how I didn't put this together sooner. But also, yeah. fuck you, Augustus. Huge fuck you. But what I think is interesting in the Aeneid, too, is that you don't actually get any descriptions of them being in love. Like, mm-hmm. they have sex in a cave, and it's all, you know, set up by Juno to get them so-called married. And then it's like, just zip it at past, and suddenly we're to believe that they have this love story. But there is no yeah. indication on how much time they spent together, how much they slept together after the cave, if it was much at all. Like, there really isn't a lot. And I think that that, and whether or not this was intended, because this could just be more of like an ancient thing versus a modern thing, but it could very well have intended to suggest even further that. Dido, most of their relationship was in Dido's head. You know? Yeah. Like, it's such mm-hmm. a modern way of doing it, too, where it's like, no, the girl's just crazy in love, and the guy's like, what do you mean? Like, we haven't even, you know, been together that long, or whatever. It's just, it feels like a modern trope. It's like, well, we slept together one time. I didn't commit. We didn't decide to be exclusive. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It just feels so reminiscent of today. Augustus is very aware that he's built this empire. Like, he's looking around at his legacy and he's realizing that he doesn't know who's going to carry on that legacy for him so that legacy needs to be a document you know an epic poem like the Aeneid to show everything that he's done all of this work of his life and I feel like that's also something to think about when we when we talk about the Aeneid he was at this place where he was so unsure if there would even be another emperor if there would even be another first citizen he didn't know Mm, this was kind of his his marble edifice in words, I suppose you could say. Yeah. And I guess what I what I always find fascinating about the Aeneid is that it's technically considered unfinished. So Virgil was taking the patronage of Augustus and probably he was like, you know, 
maybe publishing bits and pieces of it to keep Augustus happy. But there's a part of me that feels very strongly that Virgil knew his odyssey and he was pulling his own Penelope. You know, this was the tapestry that he was weaving, that he was unweaving again at night, so that he never actually had to publish the entire Aeneid. Because when Virgil died, he said, oh, it's not published. Burn it. I don't want anyone to see it. It's not done. And of course, Augustus was like, I paid for it. It's done enough. Put it out there. You know, Augustus was not a was not necessarily someone who was a lover of great literature, who was like, mm, maybe we should get someone to finish it. Nope. Just get it out there. And... You know, there's a part of me that's like, maybe Virgil never wanted anyone to see this, but he also knew where his bread was buttered and he had to write this story. Yeah. yeah that, that little aspect of it is so interesting. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is just fascinating. Like, I I had to read the Aeneid once in university and got away with not reading it at all. And then somehow I had the most ridiculous prof, the only one I ever like fully didn't pay attention to. And I just remember nothing about anything. But then, you know, reading it this way and just knowing what it is and what it was written for, it has been so fascinating just because I see it so differently. And because, of course, I've read the Iliad and the Odyssey so recently and all I read is Greek mythology. And then all I read is Ovid, too. And so to see the difference there in the way Ovid likes to write, because the Metamorphoses he also wrote for Augustus. Mm Right. But he mm-hmm. was just like, nah, dude, like, I'm just going to rewrite Greek mythology and have everybody be all transformative. And then like, we'll tuck in the end. We'll tuck it in that, you know, Aeneas was important because the end of Metamorphoses, which I haven't read, is all about Aeneas and the Aeneid. And yeah. it was essentially his way of, of getting around what Augustus wanted, by, but also doing what he wanted was to which was to rewrite Greek mythology in like the most beautiful way imaginable. And people on the internet love to give and me to shit honest, for Ovid but my god he was a king amongst men I fucking love all his work and to be honest Liv I'm not so sure that that isn't what Augustus wanted anyway like what Augustus wanted and what a, lo- a lot of what the Romans did was they were assimilating all these cultures and they knew that the Greek myth- the Greek myths were so canon everyone knew the stories so by giving them Roman names and by Romanizing them and having that beautiful language and storytelling you know it was it was colonizing it was claiming that for their own and making it part of their own appropriating it yeah appropriating that's Mm -hmm. what i I want to say and you know i think one of the things to remember is at this time augustus had also you know essentially taken over egypt so all of that rich egyptian mythology and culture had already existed and you have egyptian mythology and culture you've got you know venetian you've got um Greek, you've got Thracian, you've got all of these areas that have their own rich stories and and heroes. And here's Augustus trying to put them all into one empire. So what does he do? He creates this refugee hero who's gone to all these different places and has adventures in all these different places. And he winds up in Rome. And why he's a good hero for the Roman people is because he does his duty. He listens to the gods. He worships them properly. And, you know, he's very much committed to what's right over what might make him happy. Or what's good for him personally or Mm -hmm. however you want to explain that, whatever he did with Dido. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's what I mean. You know, what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) rather than staying with Dido and, you know, founding Carthage and having a completely different story, he's like, no, must journey on, must have hardships and everything else until... He gets to Rome and eventually marries a woman much too young for him. And another thing that we could talk about, but I will let you guys discover that story without me spoiling it. (laughs) Oh, yes. I'm still getting through it. I have not read the rest of the Aeneid. Oh, I had one question that we moved on from this topic, but I was really interested in what you thought about this, Liv. 
you were saying that there were a lot of parallels between what Virgil was doing in the Aeneid and what um, Homer was doing in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I was wondering if you saw any parallels between um, Dido's story and anything that happened in either of those epics. I don't think so. But I think that that, again, is exemplifies what made what uh, Virgil was doing Mm -hmm. uh, so different from what Homer was doing. Because Virgil's telling of the story of Dido had a point. It had a purpose that it was trying to convey, whereas Homer's characters and his women specifically didn't have a purpose. They were just women of ancient Greece, which sadly meant they didn't mean a whole lot. Um, but they, none of their stories were out to prove that Carthage deserved to be destroyed or, or that, you know, like the, all the different things that I think that, that Augustus was trying to say about Carthage and about the Punic Wars in the Aeneid wasn't necessary in Homer because Homer was simply telling an epic story about epic people who they also, you know, I think they kind of believed that, that the characters of the Iliad and the Odyssey existed, but they also very much kept them separate from the more standard mythologies in terms of what people believed was more accessible to them in that time. Like the characters of the Iliad and the Odyssey, even to the ancient Greeks, as far as I understand it, was more epic than the people they they were now it was of an earlier time when heroes were really heroes and and all this like they weren't they wouldn't have linked Odysseus and Theseus you know Mm -hmm. like they wouldn't have as much as the Athenians like lived for Theseus like had such a hard on for him all the time (laughs) massive toga bulge Jesus Christ that's a chiton bulge Jenny you're right you're right it's It's a a chiton bulge bulge. (laughs) wrong bulge (laughs) But yeah, I think it's just, that's the difference. Even my referencing Athens and Theseus is such a good example of that. Like, Athens is not in the Iliad or the Odyssey because they were written before Athens was the major player in the Hellenic world. You know, like, that's how old they are and how much the Greeks overall consider, the, consider them to be sort of, like, above it all, like, beyond their the stories they had then, because Theseus was the hero of Athens. He was the Athenian hero. Meanwhile, the Iliad and the Odyssey were beyond Athens. They were pre-Athens. They were when Mycenae and Crete mm-hmm. ruled the world. The, the people that ruled everything. You know, Agamemnon was the king of Mycenae. Meanwhile, when when Athens was ruling everything, Mycenae wasn't really a thing. You know, even the playwrights would rename it Argos and say that all of that stuff happened in Argos instead of Mycenae because of they were picking a, a major player. And so I think that's always so interesting and, and also shows how important it is to note how long ago Homer's writings come from versus something like the Aeneid, where Homer was before Athens ruled the Mediterranean and Aeneid was like hundreds of years after Athens had ended. Well, not hundreds. I shouldn't say that. But, you know, it was like Athens wasn't the major player by the time that Virgil was writing. And then so much happened in between that it's like they're just completely different things. But at the same time, the the Romans respected Homer in the, in a similar way to the way the Greeks respected Homer. And so Virgil yeah. wanted to call mm-hmm. upon that respect and use that respect in order to uh, make his story more important and more respectable and more believable. Yeah, he needed that. He essentially needed to sort of borrow some of, you know... Um, 
homers. He needed that social currency. Yeah. He needed that that social proof mm-hmm. of being associated with not quite the Iliad, but the Iliad slash Odyssey. The Odyssey even more so in the way that mm-hmm. the Aeneid is called the Aeneid and the Odyssey is called the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Like he even named it in the same way where yeah. like sure the Iliad is named for Troy. So that's a similar thing. But the Odyssey is named mm-hmm. for a man. The, it's mm-hmm. It is named for Odysseus. I mean you can tell how much Homer succeeded where Virgil didn't in the way that we have a word Odyssey now, which literally means like a treacherous journey, you know, and and whereas the Aeneid thankfully is not a word, but it's just, it's so obvious what he was trying to do, even in, even in the naming structure of it being like, this is the story of Aeneas. Yeah. Well, and I think that's really important because the, the Odyssey is a story about, the epic struggles that Odysseus goes through to get home. And the Aeneid oh, is the stories about the epic struggles that Aeneas goes through in order to find a new home after his home has been destroyed by Odysseus. Well, I mean, you guys, if you don't have any other fascinating anecdotes about Aeneas or Dido, rather, the more important one to bestow upon oh, us all. Dido. Well, yeah. thank we you both. Uh, we do. I mean, she's amazing. God, honestly, yeah. like, and that's why I wanted to, even so long ago that we decided to do this, but I wanted to discuss mm-hmm. Dido with you guys because I just yeah. think Dido is so interesting. And it's one of those things where there's only so much I can go through when it's just me talking. And so I love that I have some people who are equally um, crazy freaks uh, and want to, like, have a full discussion about <laughs> I mean, this. Yes, I'm. Yeah, 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 don't exactly. deny it. I mean, I know us. I would never. No. I'm very proud yeah, of it. Yeah, me too. That's why I say it. God. We are nerds about this shit like you. So, yeah. yes. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. Enormous, yes. enormous nerds. Absolutely. That intersection yeah. of mythology and history is just my sweet spot. Oh, well, thank you, too, for for coming on this show today. Yeah. You're all just, I mean, it's just so much fun. Oh, for sure. Nerds. Yeah, very exciting. Thank you so much for yeah. having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Oh, gosh. Happy to. Where can the entire world find you and listen to endless amounts of your podcast, you guys? So we are Ancient History Fangirl, and you can find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or Ancient His Fan on Twitter, Ancient History Fangirl on social, Instagram, Facebook, and Ancient History Fangirl wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. And I'm at Jen McMenemy, and you are? I'm Jenny Williamson. But yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We're all, we're big nerds. We love talking about this stuff. And thank you so much, Liv, for having us. This has been yes. wonderful. And anytime you need to rant about the theater, I'm here. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, you'll be back. Lord knows I'm going to keep at this for a while. I will bring you guys back to discuss more propaganda mm-hmm. madness as we go through. Uh. <laughs> oh, my God. So down. Thank you both so much. This has been so much fun. And everyone, please go listen to their podcast. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Well, thank you all for listening to that special episode. I am Liv and I love this shit.